You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. I'm Ender Goachman. And we're back. The Forum is excited to be recording from our new home at Augsburg University, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. July 1st marked the first day at our new home. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu. The Augsburg experience is supported by an engaged community committed to intentional diversity in its life and work. Also, save the date for our 2020 annual conference, Facing Forward. This year's conference is March 10th, 11th, and 12th at the Minneapolis Convention Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our three-day flagship event, the annual conference, is our premier learning opportunity at the cutting edge of diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape. Learn more about the conference, the conference theme, and the conference learning pillars at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Also, thank you to all who participated in our annual conference call for proposals. We had over 215 submissions, a new record. The Forum webinar series will return after a brief break from a transition to Augsburg University. Sign up for our emailing list to receive updates to the latest webinars. In the meantime, visit our online archive where you can access our library of past webinars, podcasts, articles, and other diversity, equity, and inclusion resources. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion webinar series are free monthly webinars offering professional and organizational skill building opportunities in diversity, equity, and inclusion topics, featuring presenters from industries around the globe. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the forum grows. So thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again and enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. I'm Ben Rue with the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. In this episode of the Forum podcast, we hear from Laura Wendt, Manager of Diversity and Inclusion at AT Kearney. Laura holds a PhD in medical psychology and behavioral immunobiology, and within her highly recognized neuropsychology studies, she has researched and taught unconscious biases, gender challenges in the workplace, and the role of underrepresented minorities for more than 10 years. She is the author of several scientific papers, appearing in the Handbook of Experimental Pharmacology as well. As the Global Manager of Diversity and Inclusion at A.T. Kearney, she has developed dynamic, bespoke, conscious inclusion trainings, helping industries worldwide to increase the application, promotion, and retention rate of women and other underrepresented minorities. She is an international speaker who delivers unique approaches to help companies build a more diverse and productive work environment that attracts top talents and increases the motivation, satisfaction, and engagement of employees. In this podcast, which is a replay of the June webinar called How Building an Inclusive Company Today Will Ensure Market Success Tomorrow, Laura discusses how unconscious biases occur when trying to build an inclusive work environment. She also shares scientific and and industry case studies on how to attract, retain, and promote minority groups. And finally, Laura offers listeners advice on how to take action with her five-step toolkit against everyday biases to improve your business culture. This session contains the neuroscientific findings and recent cases from industries on how to discover our blind spots when it comes to working together and also delivers a practical toolkit on how to successfully implement DNI changes across the whole firm, such as establishing a new reward structure, changing evaluation and interview procedures, and on how to have courageous conversations with all employees to ensure that everyone feels respected and welcome for who they are in their workplace. Thank you everyone for tuning in and enjoy the show. I'm delighted to be here today and talk to you about how to build an inclusive company and how this ensures market success tomorrow. And briefly about myself, um, I'm a neuroscientist and I joined AT Kearney four years ago as a management consultant and 
two years ago, I switched into my new role where I can uh, merge neuroscience and um, consultancy into one role. And I'm a global manager now for diversity and inclusion. And I'm also consulting Fortune 500 companies on the matters of diversity as well as stereotypes and conscious biases and all these very current and trendy uh, subjects and topics that you're hearing at the moment. So um, this will also explain a lot of the research that I'm passionate about and that I'm going to share with you today. However, before we get started, I would like to ask you a quick question. And this is, why do you think so many companies are now interested in diversity and inclusion? So please write a quick answer into the little chat boxes. Uh, let's see, we've got, let's just gonna read the first couple that we got. Changing demographics of the country, um, changing workforce, retention issues, retention of talent, mm -hmm. uh, increased productivity and reach better financial results for required recruitment. Employees are demanding it and the contribution to profit is obvious. It's a trend. I'm um, okay. changing demographics and the profit benef the benef it's beneficial for profits. <laughs> Okay, great. I just wanted to uh, gather a couple of opinions. And um, it's already interesting. I mean, of course, this is the topic of the webinar today, but there are obviously some bottom line effects of DNI. Um, however, on the other side, um, I feel a bit torn when I talk about this topic today because, on the one hand, it should be something that we do because we want to care for other human beings. So we should have DNI policies um, as top of the list because we care for human beings. However, I am also very much aware, and that's why I will present you a variety of different research um, results, that not everyone is convinced about this topic, just how everyone is not convinced yet in the business world about uh, the digital changes that are happening. And uh, in general, to be brutally honest, I find DNI is often an overused word, just like big data. A lot of people talk about it, but most people don't really understand it. And it's a very trending topic, um, which you can also see, for example, because this month it's Pride Month. And when you walk through big cities, it seems to be all about the rainbows. And now everyone seems to be, um, the rainbow seems to be their favorite color. And that has changed dramatically because five or 10 years ago, it wouldn't look like that. And um, so I'm aware also because I'm consulting a lot of big companies that uh, I wouldn't convince um, those who have the shares and who have the power if I would just say, hey, it's the good thing to do for human beings. However, this intertwines perfectly and I would like to show this with one of my favorite um, study results done by um, a financial scientist, uh, finance scientist from the London Business School. He um, assessed the uh, shares and how they are growing and he compared the 100 best companies to work for of the Fortune magazine, the US version, and he calculated what would have happened if you would have invested into these companies each year since 1984. And the crazy thing is you would have actually got wins 20-fold so, um, of your shares. And if you would have invested into S&P Global, you wouldn't even ha would have made half as much. So those are the results. So what are we talking about when we talk about the 100 best companies to work for? Those are the companies that care for human beings and for their values. And this correlates because if you feel, and Google also found that out, the number one most important reason to be um, the best at yourself at work is to feel psychological safety. And if you feel like you belong to your work, you will give your best, you are more loyal to your employer and chances are less likely that you're going to leave early or go to the competitors. So caring for your employees, caring for diversity and inclusion, making everyone feel included is good for shareholders, is good for companies as well. So um, it's good for everyone. <laughs> so. And as you already saw in the chat box results, um, I know this uh, webinar is also intermediate. Um, I don't have to go through all the research, but as you can see as, for example, um, being more diverse and inclusive as a company, you have the increased ability to attract and retain the best talent, um, better customer service and public image, especially in this global village. That's really important that you represent the entire world and um, 
all the different ethnic backgrounds and genders and sexual orientation. There, there's such a long list of um, diversity, but it's also better as we just saw for also higher revenue and profit. And you have the most motivated and effective employees. So just like with big data, you could say, okay, great, it sounds perfect. So why is not everyone diverse and inclusive? If it's that great, why is not everyone doing it? And this is now where um, my passion for neuroscience um, kicks in because human beings are funny beings. And I would like to um, also state, I like to provoke and I like to um, speak freely. So I apologize if I provoke one or the other person that is listening. Um, but definitely I would say um, we all have blind spots and we're good people with really good intentions. And I think often where we believe it's ignorance, in reality, it is just a lack of knowledge or education. And the reality is that diversity and inclusion is really challenging and hard because as human beings, we prefer those who are like us. It's still wired deeply into our brains um, when we used to have to survive in homogeneous small little groups. And we immediately feel drawn to those who are like us. Just think about your private network, for example. And what you can see in studies is if you put teams together who are homogeneous and who have to, for example, solve a case study, they are um, not as good as a heterogeneous team. However, working together feels effortless and it feels like fun because people think like you, maybe they have the same background and the same style. And we often rely on what we see, perception is reality. We make quick judgments and also on our gut feelings. And if it felt good working with these people, hey, then it's better and the, the objective results do not count as much. And often companies feel like DNI is not working because those who make it to the top behave the diverse talent at the end exactly like the homogeneous mass that is already there. And then you could almost say, hey, it's not working because people assimilate to fit in because that's also a fundamental human need. And there are some key challenges of our tribal behaviors. There's a recent study that showed, um, again, the echo chamber phenomenon. When you just look at Twitter or um, Instagram, Facebook, or any groups where people um, talk and could now associate with one another, you can see that those who agree on certain topics um, are also more likely to chat with one another. So if you believe in climate change or if you're against it, chances are you're not gonna talk to the other group. You're gonna talk and mingle to those who think just like you and then it's a confirmation bias. You think, hey, that's how the world is. And it feels more comfortable and less, there's less effort. Also, the more diverse and the bigger a university campus is, the less likely people are to mix with others. So this is crazy. So the more global and bigger your company is, the less likely people are to mix with the others and to learn from others, but rather stick to their own flock. And, um, why is that not good for business? Because there's the strength of weak ties theory. And that's quite fascinating because those employees who are reaching out to people that they don't really have strong ties with, this could be your maybe a financial analyst and you're talking to the maintenance guy or to the um, air conditioning fixing person. Um, and the more you do that, the more you reach out to people within your company with whom you don't really have strong ties with, the more creative and innovative your ideas are. More than 500 um, leaders were investigated and asked, and um, they showed a list of those people who, the employees who brought the best, most innovative ideas. And those were the ones who had the most interactions with weak ties. So that's why it's very great to um, yeah, make it possible within the company that people reach out to one another and to encourage that dialogue. And I think this is one of the most important slides and I'm, I'm delighted to talk about this because um, this is part of my research um, from my past. Um, and I will also go talk about this later on because first of all, um, today we could say, hey, we're all uncomfortable egalitarians. People are really careful almost to the extent also since hashtag me too, to how we relate to one another. We don't want to offend. We want to be good people. We don't want to say the wrong words or the wrong definitions about others. And um, we also don't want to walk on eggshells. However, our words do have power and that is not to be underestimated. So one of my colleagues um, at our clinic where we worked, uh, did an astonishing experiment where she had subjects who would um, receive money for enduring pain and they would have a laser applied to their hands and that's really painful, it's a heat stimulus and you have to rate that pain from zero to 10. 
and then you're put into a brain scanner and then you can also see in which areas the pain is processed. So then the study participants received a very powerful painkiller like morphium and then again got the laser pain and of course the pain decreased to around let's say three. Um, now it's interesting because what can our words do to our brain and to our perceptions? So what my colleagues did is they told the participants, okay, we're going to give you again the most powerful painkiller, but in reality they received placebo. And indeed it worked just as well as the morphium and um, they couldn't feel the pain as much and the pain area in the brain wasn't as active. But then interestingly enough, there's also the nocebo effect, which is the opposite. While placebo means I shall help and heal, nocebo means I shall harm. So when the researchers told the participants, yeah, I'm sorry, you're gonna get that pain again, but now we won't give you anything. It's just like a water, salt water solution. But in fact, they received again, the powerful painkiller morphium um, just this information blocked the effects of morphium and they felt the pain just as much and in the brain, the brain was just as active. So our words can bring healing and um, suppress pain, but also they can do a lot of damage. So that's why, and that's always the difficulty in psychology. There's no, you do A and then B happens. As we all know, human beings are very complex, um, but that's important to keep in mind. So when we are uncomfortable, maybe that's for a good reason because our words can do a lot of damage or a lot of healing. And this goes even as far as when you are a team leader or um, a manager of a team and you say to your team when they have to work on different work streams alone, hey, we're going to do this together. Just by the word together, it activates <laughs> that they work 50% longer on their projects and they're more, they show more endurance and also more creativity just by that word, feeling like you belong to the tribe. So that's very essential for us. And yeah, <laughs> maybe embarrassing, but all of us human beings, we need to fit in. And um, if we do not fit into the tribe, if we don't feel like we really belong to our workplace, um, that is causing micro injuries. And um, yeah, that's a very sad picture. You could almost say it's like this torturing method of a thousand cuts um, because nobody's walking around today in the work environment and says, you know what, I don't like you. I don't like this color of your skin. I don't like you because you are gay or a woman or whatever. Um, but rather we are uncomfortable relating to others. And we often make compliments or um, say awkward things. Um, this could be anything like when somebody outs themselves to say, oh, I love the gays. <laughs> and you can always reverse it to test it because you would never say that to a heterosexual person at work. Or are you looking forward to your time off to somebody who's pregnant? Or if you look Indian, I'm just um, giving you a collection of a list of what people have shared with me. Um, if somebody looks Indian, they're asked to do the Excel modeling automatically, for example, or don't worry about the presentation, you look good, or um, yeah, that's fascinating, you can code, or oh, how come you don't drink any alcohol? It could be anything like this, and we have awkward conversations, and another person might feel like, oh, um, is there something wrong with me? What's happening? And this can have an effect on our efficiency and our output at work even. So because there never really was, but especially in our day and age, um, work-life balance, but it's rather blending. And let's face it, we prefer to work with, with those whom we like and whom we can trust. And you can only build trust if you show your whole self at work. And um, I will talk in the next step about LGBT plus individuals, because a lot of people say, hey, why do we even need to talk about this? I don't care what people do at home. Why do we even need LGBT plus events or networks? And this is one of the reasons, because if you have to hide who you are, people don't trust you. You can't afford today not to go to a Friday festival or never to speak about your plus one or your family if you only strictly separate work from home or your private life. You're, the chances that you will get promoted or have a bonus are also um, yeah, decreased because those who are liked receive bonuses, receive the promotion. So it's very important to bring your whole self to work. And what I found really astonishing is this is not imagined. This is not just um, an idea to be very sensitive, but rather it is so key for our survival um, that it's even coded in our brain. So 
I love that study where it has been shown that when you get hurt in a social situation, for example, at work, where you feel like, oh, you know, they don't really joke with me, they don't really um, include me, or they talk weird and different with me, um, you, you get less efficient. And as you know, you don't put in the extra hours, you're not as loyal. And if you have a fun team, you, you, will, you will burn the midnight oil. So if you are getting hurt, um, the same brain areas in your brain, the, the same neural clusters are active that are also coding something like a headache or even a hangover. And this is astonishing because researchers really tried it then. They gave study participants for three weeks Tylenol, which is like um, aspirin for those who don't know that brand. It's a headache painkiller. And um, they also had participants who didn't receive any um, yeah, painkiller or Tylenol for three weeks. And then all these people, all these participants were um, rejected in a social situation. And those who took the Tylenol every day, their brains were less active and they were less hurt um, by the others who rejected them. So who would have known that you can heal a broken heart or rejection um, just with aspirin or Tylenol. And then you can also understand why a lot of LGBT individuals or also people who do not belong to the majority are less efficient at work because imagine you have to show up to work every day and you have a headache or you are suffering from a hangover. Of course, you can't be as efficient. So let's have the first poll. Did you ever avoid holding hands with your partner in public because of fear of a negative reaction? Okay, do you have the results, Ben? Ah, great. Okay, so 19% um, said yes and 81% said no. And that's already very um, telling for me because when um, I'm also doing um, courses and uh, workshops for LGBT plus individuals, and uh, again, I apologize because um, it's a mouthful. I can't say LGBTQIA plus every time, so I'm just gonna shorten it. Um, but I mean, of course, everyone. Um, it, it, it's fascinating because I, most of the time I have 100% yes. And um, here that's a very, very different result. And um, this also goes to show, okay, we do live in really different worlds and how much effort does it take um, when you also have to hide your affection for another human being. And next, to get you a little bit involved before we um, get into the next uh, yeah, lesson. More than 40, I just would like you to answer if you think this is true or false. More than 40% of LGBTQI plus graduates go back in the closet when they start their first corporate role. Is that true? That is a very <laughs> advanced audience. So 94% say it's true. Yes, it's true. It's um, actually 42%. And um, that is a very sad statistic when, we, when, when you think about that. So what's happening at our workplaces? How diverse and inclusive are they really? And this poll was done, um, this investigation, um, in countries where it was not even a crime to be not heterosexual. And last uh, question, true or false? The estimated global spending power of the LGBTQI plus community is 3.7 billion. Do you think that's true? It looks like around 80% say it's true. And surprise, this is false because it's actually 3.7 trillion. <laughs> so there's big spending power here that we're talking about because, um, like I said, why is inclusive? Um, why is an inclusive company good for business? Because I mean, think about that spending power. Um, if nothing else convinces you. And um, but before we get more into the business case, um, it's no wonder that hiding one's LGBT identity can reduce workplace productivity for the reasons that I've already explained. But more than 50% um, hide it at work. And as we saw, so many go back, 42% go back into the closet. And around 70% of LGBT individuals say it is oversharing or too much information when they tell their co-workers um, about their personal relationships. But for somebody who's heterosexual, it's no issue if they talk about their weekends and um, yeah, what they did on their holidays. And okay, then you could say, well, why don't you just come out and you're a role model and you're free. Um, however, sadly, we live in a world where 2.7 billion people live in countries where having, when being not heterosexual um, is a crime. So it can be even life-threatening in, in some areas. And even 
um, in, within the US, um, I've, I've went through some recent studies and was very shocked to see that 30% um, of, um, in some surveys, um, workers said they would be uncomfortable working with an LGBT individual. And I mean, now we're not just talking about a cut, but this is a major um, wound. And as well as um, there's even a study that showed that some people feel like they need to wash themselves when they have contact with somebody who's not heterosexual. And of course, we're all primed because we're eye animals by media and how LGBT individuals are portrayed as if it's all about sex and rainbows. And um, sadly, there are not as many movies out where they show, hey, those are people, human beings with the same needs and um, yeah, same dreams and same pain and sorrows like everyone else. And there's a huge distortion. And what is being said at the water cooler or at the coffee machine? You never know who's listening. You never know um, whom, who, who your words could create a nocebo effect to. And um, I have so many examples where people out there, co-workers, and they say, hey, I'm doing you a favor or didn't everybody know? But it's, it's not your judgment call to out somebody as well as when somebody outs themselves that others change their behavior. For example, with a lesbian, they start to talk about orange is the new black or start to adapt like gay mannerisms that they saw on TV and all of a sudden act strange um, or ask way too personal questions, overstep boundaries. And um, there's also something I would like to mention, which is the bisexual erasure because not only do um, LGBT plus individuals have um, higher chances of depression, anxiety, and um, mental illnesses, and of course, stress-related disorders, how, um, but especially um, bisexual individuals are at great risk because they're the biggest group of the LGBT plus individuals, but they have the lowest representation. And a lot of people also say, hey, it's not really a real thing. You're just greedy um, while you would tell a gay man in a heterosexual marriage to come out, you would, you would hardly say that to a bisexual mother. And um, the effects are shocking um, because those moms get asked on a Monday, hey, what did you do on the weekend? And how can your husband stay with you? And we have all these preconceptions. And um, just one example, um, a friend of mine who's bisexual, she's working for a big law firm. And she shared with me when she went to a great pride event um, during June. Um, all the co-workers were just teasing her and saying, hey, you just want to party there. You just want to fly there. I mean, come on, you just have the best out of both worlds. And a lot of things that are just said carelessly, um, you don't know um, who's wounded. And um, especially, I, I often get that asked from, big from people from big companies. So why is there an LGBT network? Why do you even need this? I mean, besides the clear fact that it's... Um, very life-threatening in certain areas in this world, um, do not underestimate the thousand cuts and um, the hurt that are experienced throughout the day. And um, for example, imagine you could not bring your partner to, um, a, fest, to, to a firm event because, um, and this is what one of my colleagues shared with me, you would have to be ashamed to bring your partner and it's bad for your career. I mean, just imagine how that would feel like. And 32% of LGBTQI plus workers are more productive when comfortable being out at work. And I promised you some business cases um, because I'm also consulting a lot of firms on establishing an allies um, support network and an LGBT network um, for their employees. And if they're not convinced by the personal stories, if they're not touched by their hearts, maybe they're touched in their heads by their numbers. And um, one great study by Credit Suisse found that 270 companies identified as LGBT friendly had a share price that outperformed their peers by 1.3% per year over six years. So you have greater returns, then greater commitment. Again, remember the Fortune 100 um, shares, 20-fold increase. So closeted employees are 73% more likely to leave their jobs within three years. And it can cost around 30% of an annual salary to uh, replace your employer uh, employees. And um, this is very expensive and the war on talent has just begun. And LGBT plus and allies at inclusive companies are more likely to go the extra mile for company success. And it's also a greater appeal because millennials want to see inclusive policies at companies they work for and they go on these global, uh, on these digital benchmarks and check out the companies. 
and 71% of LGBTQI plus and 82% of allies say they are more likely to purchase from a company that supports LGBTQI plus equality. So um, yeah, this is more than important for business. So again, I would like to hear from you. What is the difference between equality and equity? Also one of those words we hear a lot about, like DNI. And which one do you prefer and why? Maybe you can just um, leave one or two sentences in the chat box. See, equality is giving everyone a shoe. Equity is giving everyone this, uh, a shoe that fits. Uh, <laughs> every, uh, nice. see, equ equity is my size. Everybody, everybody gets the same versus everybody gets what they need. Equity is better. Prefer equity. Equity, exclamation point. Equity is everyone gets what they need. Um, not everyone gets the same thing. Prefer equity. Mm. So the, it seems the trend is equity. Equity is making, <laughs> equity is making is, up for lack of equality. Okay. <laughs> this is an amazing audience. I already love it. Although exactly. I can only see you through the, you can only observe me through the one-way mirror. Um, yeah, because usually I hear equality and um, it's the first time I've ever heard <laughs> those results. And I, I like the examples. I'm, I'm really looking forward to those. We have a very advanced audience here at the forum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, great. Um, so maybe then for those newcomers, um, it's um, and I would love to hear your favorite um, stories to illustrate this. Um, you often hear, you know, equal equality. Hey, this is fair. Everyone gets the same, and there is a lot of resistance um, because also the work that I'm doing at AT Carney and I'm consulting um, firms about is to give something extra, to be fair, equity to others, and then of course the ones who do not receive that um, could get upset and don't understand and say, hey, I feel positively discriminated. Why don't I get this pride event? Why can't I go to the parade? Why don't I have a network? Why don't I have this special dinner? And uh, one of my favorite explanations is um, the sandwiches. So um, equality is you have three people and just imagine one person didn't eat for a week. The other one just had a sandwich and the third had a five course meal. And equality is saying, hey, all of you get a sandwich, but it doesn't really make any sense because some people are more hungry and the one that didn't eat for a week may get five sandwiches. The other one that just had one once half and the last one with a five course meal doesn't need one. And I think that explains it a lot that some people are more in need and that's why um, it can come across unfairly. But I think if we have these open conversations, it makes it a lot easier for others to step up as allies. And that leads me to one of the most important points there's no equity possible without allies. And um, okay, I'm here now and I look like a woman um, and I'm heterosexual and I'm an ally to the LGBTQI plus network. And um, I believe in allies and often I, I think it's overlooked as humans, we have um, autonomy and we need to step up and make the change that we would like to see because I could walk around and say, hey, I would love to have a mentor or a sponsor. I'm a woman. I need an extra sandwich. But it's the better attitude to say, hey, you know what? Um, I'm privileged because I'm heterosexual. I can hold hands with my husband and I can talk openly about our last holiday and um, I can travel anywhere and I don't get asked weird questions. And um, But others can't. So I'm going to be an ally for them because if you want one, be one, and we all can be one. And let's face it, the reason why women can vote is because men voted for that. So it was the majority, it was the allies who gave the women the rights, as well as why can LGBT individuals in some regions get married? It's because heterosexuals voted for that. The majority voted for that. And I believe we will not have any changes. Um, I think networks and extra sandwiches and support groups and events are great, but we need to be inclusive and we need to do it together and um, yeah, share with everyone. And uh, some of my um, hero allies are, for example, Ronan Farrow. As you may know, um, hashtag me too would not have been possible without his journalistic work and his support. And I'm also very impressed by Terry Crews. For those of you who don't know him, Google him. <laughs> he's um, very impressive um, by appearance. So he's a former NFL star and um, also an actor. And he shared 
fascinatingly enough, um, that he was sexually assaulted by um, a very high person in Hollywood. And I said fascinatingly because you would not expect it that somebody would dare to do that. And he said, you know what, I didn't say anything and I didn't come out because I was afraid of retaliation and, and scared. So he said, so what can you say to these women? How could you tell them now, hey, why didn't you come out earlier? He didn't dare to come out. And that was so brave of him to speak up about that. As well as Alex Liu, he's our managing partner at Carney. And he, he did something amazing. He made this wonderful video message to all of our employees globally and sent it around um, why he's such a big supporter of our LGBT plus individuals and the network and why he supports it and why he thinks it's great. And it had amazing effects on our network as well because across all the regions, significantly more people came out and joined the network and um, stepped up and were brave. And this shows one more time how important it it is to have leadership buy-in um, to see, okay, this is really what we stand for. And this is, um, yeah, um, done by somebody who doesn't have to do it. I think that's very, very powerful and empowering. So let's go back to our brains because <laughs> um, it, it sounds also positive. So, but the thing is we are often not aware of what's happening inside, how we're processing when we're interacting with others. And when we think of others, um, it's fascinating what brain regions get activated. And this is one of my favorite studies done in Harvard. Let's say we have two guys called John and Mark, and I know it's stereotypical cliches, but John is this very nice, friendly guy who wants to work at an NGO and um, do good in life later on after his studies. And um, also, yeah, is open to any um, to, to a strong woman. He doesn't have to be the sole breadwinner, and he's he's very liberal in his uh, views. While Mark is very conservative, and he wants to have this career, and um, is uh, wants to be the sole breadwinner, and is very focused on that. And the students, are, most of them, said, "Hey, I can way more relate to John. He he comes. I, I like him more." So then they were put into a brain scanner. And they had to think of John and Mark. And uh, while they did that, um, the areas that were active in the brain were analyzed. And what you can see is that two neural clusters in the frontal cortex were active that are really close to one another, but they're not the same. And what's really fascinating is when, when you look at John, is when, when you relate to John and when you said, hey, I can really relate to him, he's a lot like me, when you thought of him, the same area was active as when you were thinking about yourself. So when you think of somebody who's like you and that you like and that you relate to, we're all a bit narcissistic, obviously, because we like those who like who are like us and also who say, hey, I like you. It's, it's really strange. And um, so we don't know what's happening in our brain when we try to objectively process somebody, when we evaluate somebody in an interview or in promotion talks. And that's why there are fun studies like um, if you dress like your supervisor, you're more likely to get a promotion. That's a fact. <laughs> and um, then again, it's not that we are victims, but I think it's important to have a laugh about this as well and not to get awkward about it, um, how our brains are wired, because even babies already prefer their own race and those who are like them. For example, if they have a primary caregiver that is a man, they also prefer, prefer to look at male faces. And by three months, um, babies prefer to look at faces of their own race. And fascinatingly enough, by nine months, it's easier for them to distinguish faces of their own race compared to faces of somebody else's race. So that leads to biases that we um, may often encounter in this global village um, that, for example, for Caucasians, Asians all look alike and maybe Asians say, hey, Africans all look alike and vice versa and all around. And um, we don't really talk about it. And um, when I shared this with some Asian colleagues, I had um, yeah, a fun testimonial, so to say, because one of my colleagues said, um, she was laughing and she's like, ah, okay, now I understand because some Europeans came to her to um, Singapore, wanted to give her a compliment and said, you know what, you look just like Lucy Liu. <laughs> and uh, she's like, what? Um, this is so weird. I totally don't. But then she realized, okay, for them, 
I must have, and it, this is like one of these awkward um, compliments. And since I know this, I'm not, um, I don't take it at all personal when I'm not in the Caucasian area, so to say. And uh, for example, when I'm in Asia and um, people forget my face or mix me up with somebody else, I'm like, yeah, of course, I, I would do the same. And it's just better to have a laugh about it, um, to, to think, okay, this is fascinating how my brain is wired. Um, because it used to be, an advantage if you would just quickly um, distinguish between, uh, within your in-group and know, okay, this is the out-group, but now when business spans all around the world, it doesn't make any sense anymore and we have to overcome this. And I think humor and an open conversation is the best. Unfortunately, our brain is biased how we remember interactions with others, which often makes it even, um, yeah, make stereotypes keep staying alive, so to say. In one study, um, black and white people looked at black and white faces and they received, um, this is um, yeah, a type of conditioning, fear conditioning. They received um, a shock towards, and you can see the frame in the pictures, towards a white face and towards a black face. And after a while, your fear is conditioned and um, they had a little device at the palm of their hands and you can measure the sweat. And they immediately sweat and get scared when they start to see the faces because they know, okay, now I get a shock. Then the researchers wanted to um, eliminate this conditioning and the participants kept seeing all these faces and now they wouldn't receive a shock to any of these. And fascinatingly enough, um, it was way easier for white people to lose the fear towards white faces and same for black people towards black faces, but really difficult and it took longer for white people to stop fearing the black face and for black people to stop fearing the white face. And that's quite um, important to remember because if you have a negative experience with your in-group, you're more likely to forget quicker. And if it's your out-group, you may, the experience may last longer and you think, oh yeah, for example, here, I'm the German. Oh yeah, these Germans, they are, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so stern, so direct, um, they don't have any humor. I mean, look, look at her. <laughs> and then you prove again this, and when you have a different experience, it doesn't really keep in your memory, and you often um, keep having this confirmation bias. And I think it's important to always have a growth mindset and to get fresh into a new situation with a new human being. Okay, so I think this is the last poll. Are you for or against quotas, and why? This person says they're torn. I don't like them when they encourage bad behavior and hiring people just for the sake of it. Mm. Yeah. Quotas based on opportunity. Again, torn. Got either yes or, oh, here's an against. Against, I think they drive the wrong focus for multicultural teams and attention to data, but against the quota mentality back, dash backlash. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, personally, I used to be against quotas um, and for some of the reasons that um, also have been written down. Um, now I'm for them and I would like to invite you and um, I know I have to go quicker through these slides now, uh, why? Um, first of all, because yeah, this is the current status, more men named John and David run big companies than all women. And yeah, this is a study from the, um, I think uh, within Europe and America. And uh, I mean, one solution could be to name our daughters John and David, but I mean, that can't be it. And the thing is, we're still um, not living in a world um, of equity. And I find that fascinating because um, this, I'm quickly going to introduce um, two or three studies and it's, there's no difference how men and women react. So that's fascinating. Um, it's not men against women or anything else, but it's all of us creating the status quo that we're having right now. For example, if you ask this, um, anyone, hey, do you care if your boss is a man or a woman? Almost everyone says, no, I don't care. And um, when people, men and women, look at um, different bosses and they say, you know what, I'm really considering how much I will get paid, um, how far I do have to commute, and also the character of the boss, there's a systematic tilt towards the men. And everyone, uh, almost everyone is willing to have a salary penalty of around $3,400 per year. And they're totally not aware of it. On top of it, um, a recent study revealed amongst 500 managers 
that every third manager admits that they sort out female applicants if they only assume that they could get pregnant. So <laughs> this is um, quite honestly and uh, yeah, not something that you would share um, out loudly. Um, and another study have, has found that, and by the way, more than half of these managers were women. And also same men and women said they think men are more qualified and more dedicated and more efficient at work and prefer um, if they could just hire men. And the way, and I don't want, and I think you are aware of all these studies, but um, as we know, when um, there are less than 20% of women in a room, they are less likely to speak and their performance also goes down. And um, yeah, and it just drops and you need um, around 30% women in a room so that their speaking part increases again. And also um, in another study, when um, participants had to um, evaluate a fictitious CEO, they had a man and a woman and they both spoke more than the, the other people in the room because they were the CEO. However, the woman was rated as less efficient and, as, and competent. And when the researchers presented that fictitious CEO, CEO woman as speaking less than the others, then she was rated competent again. And that shows us that um, we expect from a man to take control and to take over the room, and that's a male CEO. But if a woman does it, it violates our norms and our brains don't really like it. We like to be being able to predict and, you know, in our minds, a boss is still a man in a lot of minds, these studies show. And um, that's why I believe in the power of role models, just like our managing partner when he was a role model and an ally for our LGBT community. Um, in one study, it, it has astonishing effects because our brains, again, are eye animals. Perception is reality. When women look at a successful woman before giving a speech, um, their speech is longer and more eloquent, judged by an audience. Also, when you have successful women just pinned at a wall and you have girls calculating, because there's this stereotype that women are not as good in calculations and coding, the, um, yeah, the math results just go up just by seeing another woman. And also, on the day that Obama took office, I don't know if you're aware of this, there was the Obama effect because the African-Americans that did an IQ test on that day um, showed better performance. So um, for me, this is so powerful. If, if you see it, you can be it, you can believe it. And the question, of course, is how many minority role models are proudly displayed on um, the internet, on websites, on the office um, floors, on the walls, and can, can you really believe it? Whom can you see? Also, um, why do I believe in quotas? Because um, successful women indeed help other women to make it to the top because women are less likely to throw their hat in for competition and that's what you have to do because the corporate world is not like school where you have to be diligent and put up your hand when asked but it's like competitive sports you really have to um yeah fight together it's like um a team sport effort like rugby or something and um, in, in one study, um, students were um, able to make a lot of money by taking part in a math competition. And what was fascinating is that even the women who were best in calculation and in math were less likely to compete and to be willing to compete for money than the men who were the least qualified in math. And then the researchers showed men and women three videos one of a landscape, one of the tennis player Roger Federer competing, and one of Serena Williams competing. And these videos had no effect on men. However, when the women saw Roger Federer, even less wanted to compete. But when they saw the picture, uh, the, the video of Serena Williams, 50% more said, okay, I'm competing, I'm doing this now. And then again, my question is, how many women do we see competing on a daily basis? Um, and, and what would that do to, to, the, to the next upcoming talent and to everyone who sees? Okay, so lastly, um, let's have a courageous conversation. I talked about the power of words in the beginning. And I am aware of this very difficult balance between, okay, we don't want to walk on eggshells. We also want to, would like to make a mistake and be forgiven. And let's face it, human beings and our relationships and interactions 
are nothing else but an ongoing stream of forgiving one another, right? And um, but on the other hand, um, yeah, you, you, you want you want to um, you want to also maybe put your foot in the mouth and apologize and be forgiven afterwards. So, w what do you do? Um, and one of my favorite examples is um, the CEO Nadella from Microsoft when he was asked this question, what is your advice for women that are not comfortable with asking for a raise or a promotion? And he was asked this um, at a huge conference with more than 7,000 women all around the world who, are, who were engineers and in tech. And he said, unfortunately, um, it's not about asking for the raise, but knowing and having faith that the system will actually give you the right raises just as you go along. And he was saying something about karma and of course this the, there was a huge storm and anger and um, so much criticism which is often way over the top and exaggerated and then he did something really great so he made a mistake and he just came out and he apologized and um, he talked about the growth mindset and that we are learning and um, he, he, didn't, he didn't mean to and he didn't know, but now obviously he knows better and he didn't want to come across like that. And I think this approach is way better instead of avoiding one another. There's now a recent study out that 60% um, of male managers and leaders do not want to even interact and work with a woman because of hashtag me too and all the hysteria. And that's where we do not want to end up. We want to treat each other with respect, but at the same time, we need to be allowed to make mistakes and to be forgiven. And I always prefer when somebody says something that is not perfect, but you can always take somebody respectfully aside and um, tell them why this wasn't good. And I think it's important to, because in, in our world today, we all need to know everything and we need to have an opinion about everything and to take a step back and say, you know what, I don't know how it feels like for an LGBT plus individual or for somebody from a different ethnic background, um, how they're going along each day at work. Why don't you just ask them? Why don't you just treat them for a coffee and ask them about their experiences and how they felt or if they ever heard a weird comment or how they relate to the thousand cuts because this can really strengthen also a weak tie. So let's get to the last slide. Um, as promised, here are five simple things your company can do to be more inclusive. And this is um, basically a summary. And I know I wish <laughs> you could just say, yeah, let's just do this training and everyone is healed. But that's not how human beings work. You also can't just eat salad for one week and you're going to be, your blood um, values are going to be great for the rest of your life. We need to have, we need to constantly work at it and we make mistakes. So first of all, that is the culture of a growth mindset. And let others make mistakes. Um, you make mistakes. Um, we all make them and um, take somebody aside respectfully and, and have that conversation and we can all learn something. Instead of, you know, making compliments or saying, I love the gays and love is love or wearing a rainbow shirt, why don't you reach out to somebody and ask them what their experience is like? Then I can't say it enough, strengthen the weak ties. Um, reach out to somebody at work uh, that you usually don't talk to. Um, ask about their experience, not because you want to have the next innovative ideas, but because it's enriching to all of us. And third, establish minority net networks with allies. We have a lot of amazing uh, networks in our company, um, a women's network, an African-American network, um, a proud network, um, a veterans network. We have, I can't um, name them all, but I think it's important to see, hey, we see you, we, we know um, we would like to reach equity and also have powerful allies and let them also share their stories and yeah, establish that together. And uh, like the last studies revealed, make minority role models visible because this has an effect on anyone who doesn't belong to the majority, people are more likely to apply at your company, stay at your company and perform better at your company. So share these powerful stories. And last but not least, have courageous conversations. And um, yeah, <laughs> once in a while, put your foot in your mouth and forgive the others. So those are my closing words. And um, as the data shows, this will make your company um, more successful and set you up for success for the next years to come. And I'm more than happy now to answer some of your questions. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Laura, for that wonderful webinar. Um, we actually already have a couple people asking for the, um, asking if you could share the resources you um, cited earlier on diversity at the workplace and improving return slash profit. There are way you can share the links to those studies. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so and just a heads up to everyone, um, we have had great conversation and great dialogue in the chat, and we will and. Obviously, we weren't able to get to all of them, but we will be, uh, be posting the chat, and I'll be sending it to Laura as well. Um, so, if there's any questions that you that we don't get to, um, she will have that, and I will also be sharing her social media contact information so you can follow up with her if there's any um, questions. Hello? Oh, can you hear me, Laura? Hello, Ben. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. I couldn't hear you. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just saying that we are going to be posting the the chat as well on onto the website along mm -hmm. with the um, along with the recording of this webinar, and I will be sharing Laura's contact information if there are any questions that uh, that we don't get to. But we'll I will definitely get we'll definitely get the links to those resources to those studies that she mentioned and share those. So. Yeah, again, that's what people keep asking for is the please share the studies that you reference sure. throughout the presentation. Um, yeah. We have a congratulations for an excellent presentation throughout. Any burning question or comment or disagreements? <laughs> oh, question. In Germany, it is custom to add a photo and the birth date and such to the resume on a job application. How come that practice is not abandoned? Does it not make discrimination a lot easier? Yeah, definitely. Um, in our company, we do not ask for the photo. Um, so AT Kearney in Germany, we, we don't do that. I know some very traditional companies still do. Um, however, I think, yes, it, it, it is perfect for the interview, but then um, let's face it, we will not have an interview and there's a curtain in between. Latest when you are invited to the company and you have to talk to somebody face to face, you will encounter the same issues. And um, yeah, there are lots of studies out there as well um, that are shocking. I mean, I would love to um, do another webinar on our perception of others. For example, if you have acne or blemishes on the skin, you're less likely to land the job because immediately we're a bit taken aback and it's hard for us to connect to somebody who looks diseased. It's also a natural human being reaction. So I think you can't eliminate bias, unfortunately, but um, I, yeah, I wish, I wish you wouldn't have to do that in Germany, but unfortunately in most companies, they still do that. How do you handle the pushback from white employees when changes are made that focus on equity? Hmm. <laughs> I think with humor. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, and, and I think it's important to, um, to always know also when, when I'm consulting um, companies, there are certain people who invite me and who pay for me to consult them, but there are certain people who do not want to do this and who would like to keep the status quo. And as human beings, we love predictability. So the majority of us who would like to know what's happening. And that's, of course, disturbing and uncomfortable. And it feels like this new, weird, liberal thing to do. Now we all think about the minorities and people can make quite insulting comments. Um, I recently also um, published um, something a bit more provocative, why it's hard for our brains to understand successful women. And I was called the B word and other words, and I was very, very offend, um, offended by others. Um, and um, no, so, sorry, my English. <laughs> Not um, I was accused by others and um, put down. I, I wasn't offended because I think, um, Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own data. So that's why I love to cite data because a lot of people are not convinced by their hearts when they hear a personal story. But maybe when you share some brain studies and some bottom line success numbers with others. Um, however, I do have to accept that certain people um, will just say no and they don't like it and they will show resistance. And um, maybe they need some time, maybe some study will plant a good seed, maybe they will have a conversation. But on the other hand also, I've never seen a discussion or a debate where somebody changed their mind. Um, that never happens. And um, people, that's actually quite strong, but people can't lose their faith. And so um, 
yeah, I think it's just important to keep telling the stories and to be loving and kind. And um, yeah, you can change everyone. And um, do you suggest creating an equity team to look into policies and procedures that may be promoting inequ inequity? I think that's a great idea. Yeah. We also, for example, have a culture squad and um, thinking about a canary in the coal mine system um, squad or something like that. I think that's, that's great. And I think it's great to talk to all employees and often they can share their most insightful stories with you and also have the solutions. Maybe you can even do, um, yeah, ask for the best fixes and ideas and um, call out an award for it. So you include everyone. Fixing that. How do we train our internal partners that doing business with diverse vendors reduces disparities and increases business success? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the issue with the training is um, that some people pseudo participate. We all know how it is. Our attention is like a bird. It comes and goes and flies back. Um, so just putting somebody in a training doesn't mean that they're going to change. Plus people um, are rather free than to be right even. So they would rather like to say no. And um, because unfortunately our, all, most of our cultures do not reward if somebody changes their mind and we're having a real growth mindset and say, okay, I've changed my mind about this. Um, However, that's why I presented that data and that's what I will share with you. Um, if you just need to do it cold, database, just show the data. It's good for revenue, profit. Your employees will work harder for you. They will stay longer and so forth if they feel comfortable. So maybe that convinces them. How do you encourage ally involvement? Um, this, uh, our, our Pride Plus network has no trouble with this, but there is way less ally participation in our African-American network, for example. Mm. Yeah. So I think, um, again, the power of role models um, is it's great to sh have stories shared by African-Americans or by LGBT plus individuals or women, of course, um, personal stories that touch hearts and minds. And um, I think also ally stories. And I think a lot of people would like to be allies and they would like to help but, and support, but um, they don't really know how to and they don't want to come across condescending and um, step on anyone's toes. I think there's a lot of working on eggshells happening. So if you have just one ally and they would um, send their story or maybe like a little video message around the company and say, you know what, I'm an ally for African-Americans, although, yeah, look at me, I'm white. And that's the reason why, because I realized I'm privileged because, um, for example, I don't have to tell my kids to behave a certain way when they're pulled over on the street. And I mean, you can find so many examples or maybe they have a friend and something happened or they could even share um, a story of their own. Maybe an ally could say, hey, I struggled with depression and I had others who supported me or um, I didn't know what to do when I became a mom and how to get back to work. So I realized I had allies. So now I want to be an ally for others who also don't live in the same world as I do. And I think often there's a great um, openness to support, but I think people are shy and they don't really dare. So you could actively invite them and show others who do it. And then more and more will come, I think. Wonderful. We're, we've just got a couple more questions. Um, and then we do have to wrap this up. Yeah, my answers are too long. <laughs> no, okay. um, uh, let's see. We, uh, so we have a health and social equity committee and an ethics committee. I'm curious if you can share more information on a culture squad slash committee. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you will share my uh, Twitter and LinkedIn handle, yeah, right? So yeah, people yeah. can reach out to me and yeah, I'm more than happy to. Okay, yeah. and, then, and then this is the last question we have before I do my closing here. Um, how do you think your brain research affects a supervisor's ability to be fair when handling employee disputes, especially when the complaint, the complaint is microaggression or racism? This work seems essential in HR training, the complaint. Yeah, uh, so, so um, the question is how, how do I combine neuroscientific um, um, how research, do you, uh, yeah. How do you think your brain research affects a supervisor's ability to be fair when handling employee disputes? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe it's it's also um, a, a, an idea or initiative because the last sentence was that it should be part of HR training, and I, mm. I I totally agree. I think it's important to. I mean, I recommend to everyone. It's not an easy book, but Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. It is amazing how it explains how our brains are processing information. Um, there are also some other books. So if you reach out to me, I can send you a list, um, what I would recommend. Yeah. I, I wish everyone have, would have a basic brain training. So we know, okay, our brains are basically wired to exclude others and our brains are really mean. So what do we do with these weird brains? What funny things can we do to be nice and inclusive? Because we really want this, just how we want to eat healthy, but then we don't. <laughs> and it's the same how we have human interactions. And I think this is essential. Um, so I, yeah, I wish everyone would have a training like that, to be honest. And my colleague Ender just shared the, uh, the links to Laura's LinkedIn and Twitter and feel free to connect with her via those um so continue the conversation and get more information um yeah. but i'm gonna go uh, i'm gonna go ahead and wrap things up thank you so much laura and thank everyone you. laura and everyone who participated in today's webinar a special thank you to our webinar sponsor AI. thank you again for listening to the forum and workplace inclusion podcast don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes also tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast we'd love to hear your feedback for more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day.